This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, an edge to cloud platform as a service company built to sustainably transform your business. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large at the Post. This program is part of Post Live's Protecting Our Planet series. Today we are talking about confronting the climate crisis as the COP26 summit continues in Glasgow, Scotland. Our first guest is Her Excellency Andrea Metza Murillo. She's the Minister of Environment and Energy of Costa Rica. Minister, welcome. Hello, thank you. I'm here at the COP uh, in a very noisy place. I'm sorry, but this is the best spot we found. I'm sure you'll do great. Thank you, Minister. Ahead of COP26, UN Chief Antonio Guterres said there is, quote, serious risk that Glasgow will not deliver. We need more ambition and more action, unquote. How are the negotiations going so far? What do you make of them? Well, this is the starting the starting day, so it's it's a little bit hard to tell right now, but it's absolutely critical that we continue enhancing um, ambition. We need to deliver with a package of enhanced ambition. We need to see more clarity on what are the climate finance uh, commitments and to deliver on the climate finance commitments. We have been hearing some good initial news. Yeah, we also talked about the importance of nature and talk, um, and, and we saw also some commitments around mobilizing resources to protect nature. And I think this is also included um, things for indigenous communities. So yes, um, we are just initiating the, the negotiations, but um, well, we will do our best. There will be the voices of those countries like mine who will be pushing for an ambition outcome. Yesterday, uh, leaders touted a pledge uh, of up to 130 trillion by uh, an organization that represents many of the world's largest financial firms to help fund a transition to clean energy. Now, critics point out that some of those same firms have not yet stopped investing in fossil fuels. Do you see this step uh, and the trillion dollar, the $130 trillion fund as a good first step? Um, or how do you view it? Well, I think it's, it's a good step, but it is not enough. We really need coherence. And uh, we need to stop um, investing in fossil fuels production. Um, and we really need to mobilize more resources towards renewable energies, towards conservation of nature, and to all the transition. So I will say yes, it's good that we are mobilizing public and private money for these um, kind of funds to help the different countries in this transition. But we also need to understand that to really achieve the goals, we need to bring the whole investment that we do needs to be aligned to Paris Agreement. And that from the part of the governments that we also need to start addressing fossil fuel subsidies, which is also the other 
typical aspect that we also need to be uh, addressing soon. There seems to be some agreement this morning that some countries have pledged not to finance fossil fuel projects uh, overseas, in other countries. Um, uh, I guess not all countries have agreed to do that, but uh, what do you make of that agreement, which I guess was just either announced or is emerging this morning? Yes, uh, we've been hearing about this announcement, and, and again, I think it's a very good step to, uh, when we're talking about greening the whole financial system, it's about that, that we, every investment as investors, we do all throughout our countries also needs to be aligned. And so we do also good announcement. And as I was saying, these are very important first steps, but we need to do this systemic change in this decisive decade. We really need to accelerate all the transition and every investment coming from public and private sector needs to be aligned to Paris Agreement and we need to work very far fast to achieve that goal soon. Uh, how do you assess the implications uh, uh, at COP26 of uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin not uh, being in attendance? Uh, what does that mean? Well, it, it is, as we are saying, um, we expect all the different leaders to be here, of course. It's, it's what we need, that clarity. Um, there's a lot of important leaders here, and of course, it will be great to have those two leaders as well here, but uh, we have their delegations, and, and, and we hope that we will be able to you know, to keep on seeing the level of ambition that we need from those two countries that are critical um, right now. So let us wait a little bit to see the outcomes. Of course, as a political message, it's not really what we want to see, but um, I think that we need to be confident that we will be able to achieve robust outcomes in this in this cup. It, it is what the world demands, and, and I think that um, we will be seeing, and, and I think that we are seeing some initial signals, positive signals, um, and we will see what happens at the end. Minister, according to a study released this week, 11 of the world's top economies are responsible for the vast majority of pollution deaths, mostly in poor countries. Uh, particle solution comes from burning coal, coal oil, and gas. And smaller countries like your own have committed already to, to put an end to those, that kind of production. How to, um, how to convince larger countries to follow Costa Rica's lead? I think that it's critical to continue demonstrating that this makes a lot of, economical, of economic sense. Um, in the end, every dollar that we if we always have a decision, are we going to invest, continue investing in fossil fuels economy, or we are going to take this uh, investment and we are going to allocate them in renewables and in green industry, in other areas that at the same time generate jobs and make economic sense. So I think that it is 
critical to demonstrate that their every investment in fossil fuels at the end uh, will um, will make that transition to to be uh, in a slower time. And I think that it is just to really demonstrate that it makes an economic sense. And what we are seeing is the importance of having carbon price. And this will be, I will say, uh, something that we will be seeing in the different economies and that coming from the different measures that we are seeing also from the different investment funds and the shareholders. I mean, there is a tendency of different stakeholders demanding not to continue. So they will, these investments will become then a stranded asset. And, and I think that this is why it's so critical to be demonstrating that they need to mobilize to start seeing the other communities, other activities in those economies. And of course, help those countries that are really dependent on fossil fuel economies to make that transition happen. Uh, let's talk about the targets, which I know are also uh, controversial. Some activists attending the summit have expressed frustration with the long-term nature of the, the targets uh, uh, for zero emissions and the like. Um, uh, pledges to reach net zero by 2050 or 2060 or 2070 can seem still like a generation or two away and, and, and at times kicking the can down the road um, it's already been 30 years since, almost 30 years, since Rio. How, how do you respond to that? That when we have long-term plans, and I mean, what it is critical is that we define, hopefully all the countries, to have the goal of becoming carbon neutral in 2050. If we all define that goal and design long-term strategies, this is, this is a very important step. But when we design these long-term strategies, and I'm talking about the case of Costa Rica with our decarbonization plan, we define short-term, and this is measures that we need to take in 2022, measures that need to be implemented from 2022 to 2030, and long-term measures until 2050. So when we have long-term plans, it's not that we need to postpone action. It's not about that. It's about starting now and starting the transition, but having a clear um, objective uh, in, in 2050. So I think that it is good. It's, a, it's very important because this transition will take some years in every country. And the critical part is to really all the countries to really try to achieve that goal of becoming carbon neutral in 2050. Uh, before we talk about Costa Rica, I want to ask one more question. What are, do you think the consequences are for the next generation uh, if we don't get it right? Well, uh, catastrophic. We, we, that is not an option. We need to make it right. And, and what we are seeing is that we still have a window, a window that it is narrowing, that it is closing, but we still have a window. We have the technology, we have the knowledge. Uh, we're seeing more that we have the resources. I mean, there are a lot of resources out there 
And what we need is a social global agreement that we started in Paris. And, and now it's to really accelerate this transition. Um, so I think that it is not an option because what we see in some regions, especially in vulnerable countries, it's a totally a catastrophe. So this is not, a, I mean, morally speaking, we cannot accept that and, and we really need to deliver and continuous accelerating this whole transformation that needs to be to come from different areas from the private sector from uh, local governments and national governments all the time because this needs to be a transformational change so it has to be happening at the same time very fast Let's talk about Costa Rica. You crafted, you yourself crafted uh, the country's national decarbonization plan. It's one of the first in the world. Um, what has Costa Rica done uh, to transition to renewable energy? Well, right now, as, as you know, where our electricity comes almost 100% from renewables, our big challenge right now is to do the electrification of the different end uses. Transport, which is a big challenge right now, and for this reason we are prioritizing uh, a in big investment in an electric um, train to connect the main cities of the metropolitan area in as a project to capitalize the transformation of the city. This is one of the, uh, of the big aspects that we work on. It's important uh, and having uh, actions also in the agriculture sector. And it is modernizing and going to precision agriculture because in this way we will be able also to reduce emissions in those sectors. And uh, right now, uh, there are some political voices in the country that are saying that we should be using our gas and oil reserves to pay for this transition. I know that it sounds a little bit crazy for some of us, but this is the vision of some people. And for this reason, we want to pass a bill to ban by law the, the possibility of doing destruction, the extraction of oil and gas. And this is why we're also th think that it is so important uh, to generate momentum about the importance of phasing out not only coal, but phasing out oil and gas as well. And that's why we're working with Denmark to launch this platform called BOGA, Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. Uh, Minister, this has all taken place in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, did that make it harder to stay on track or did it in some ways accelerate your plans? I must confess that it is hard. It's it's uh, we we don't have that much uh, space. There is a clarity in the government uh, that this is an uh, un but that this is a moral mandate on one hand, and that this is uh, what Costa Rica is about. It's about taking this these decisions, these bold, sustainable decisions. And um, and yes, uh, it is not easy, but we're working on that, and and we're we're, we're moving very fast. 
even with new areas, for example, we know that it is also critical for the climate agenda to do the conservation of oceans. And for this reason, we're working to increase uh, the area that it is under conservation uh, in our uh, economic zone, that right now it is less than 3% of our ocean is under protected areas. And we're working to increase it to a 30% of our ocean uh, protected. And, and this is the kind of measures that we're working on and we're mobilizing and, and really be prioritizing the investments that are aligned with this vision, because we have seen that they generate welfare to our citizens. And we're clear that these are the elements that we need to do right now. It is not easy, but I think it is not easy in any country. Uh, thank you, Minister, for staying with us through this complicated communications link, and thank you to everyone listening. Uh, what other ways are you seeing in Costa Rica tangible impacts of climate change in your country? Yes, tangible way, uh, ways of climate change. We're, we, in the last uh, years, we have been receiving the impacts of hurricanes and different tropical storms and the destructions that we are seeing in infrastructure are raising uh, all the time. And for this reason, even our central bank is now including climate change as a risk aspect that needs to be included because it's becoming a shock to the economy. And if you talk, if you have a conversation with uh, farmers, they will let you know how the weather is changing and the impacts that they are seeing in the coffee plantations, um, in, in different, um, different, um, yeah, in different areas, in different products. So uh, even in the coastline, in the Caribbean side, we're, the, the, the sea level is rising um, and we're even losing part of the coast within a national park. This is something that we have been document that, that we have been documenting um, how we're losing coastline and we had an infrastructure for uh, the park rangers that now is has disappeared in the last what 10 years. So it's everyone is seeing uh, the impacts of climate change. And the other thing that is also critical for us is that we are in a vulnerable region in Central America and we're seeing in the, in the dry corridor, for example, uh, people that lives in very uh, vulnerable conditions. And um, every time that we have, we have a drought, there is an increase in migrations and it's, a, it's something that generates a lot of conflicts inside the region. So this is not only what we all the time say, this is not an environmental issue. This is a development issue, a social issue. So that's why it's important to deliver in this COP. Thank you, Minister. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for coming to us from Glasgow and sticking with us through the, the complicated communications. Uh, and good luck at the conference. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, and sorry for all the noisy for all the noise. Not Thank you. Not to worry. Thank you. Good luck. I'll be back with European Commission Executive Vice President Franz Timmermans in just a few minutes. Please stay with us.
The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. When you think about climate change, the tech sector may not immediately spring to mind, but digital innovation could be one key to addressing the issue. I'm Jean Meserve, and joining me is Antonio Neri. He's president and CEO of HPE. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Jane. So it's apparent that businesses are going to need to adapt if we're going to achieve a zero carbon economy. What kind of transformation do they need to make? We are living a remarkable time, Gene, where you know we live in a digital economy. That digital economy is powered by the massive amount of digital transformation we see in every industry. But we need to think about the digital transformation in a sustainable way. We today create an enormous amount of data. That data has tremendous value, but processing that data has to be thought very differently. Today, we move data all around. That creates friction, that creates energy consumption. So we think about these new models. We call it the edge to cloud architectures of the future. We have an opportunity to bring that cloud experience to where the data is, and also think about how the systems get deployed with new innovation that ultimately consume less energy and drive what we call the circular economy. So we as a company are doing a lot around that. We have a unique strategy. And actually when we show our customers what we're doing, they actually get more and more involved because many of the procurement tenders we are involved today, actually customers are demanding very specific actions you're taking because it's not just for the environmental, but also good for business. So as your customers are seeking more sustainable business models, how is HPE supporting them? Well, as I said, you know, customers now need a partner that can take them into the future. We have a say here, Gene, which is the future belongs to the past. And those who can extract insights from the data faster will be the winners. We understand those brands that are already in that path, in that journey, actually are becoming the winners because data is a source of information that allows them to create new business models, new experiences, and honestly, at the same time, create shareholder value in ways that others have not imagined. But when I talk to shareholders today and customers and partners, they are becoming way more aware about the work needs to be done around the ESG in general, with sustainability being a key component of that. And they want to know what we as a company are doing to not just support the business, but the communities. That's why we as a company have a unique purpose, which is to advance the way people live and work. So our engineers are always thinking about radical changes we can implement in our designs and the way we process that data and deliver those business outcomes in a sustainable way. As you've mentioned, the tech companies aren't direct uh, polluters, but they do process a lot of data, which takes a lot of energy. So what role do you think tech companies have to play in addressing the climate crisis? Well, it's not just the tech companies, Gene, it's everyone. We, in, including as individuals, have a big role to play to make the, 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 the planet better and obviously address this climate problem we all live in. But, you know, the reality is, Gene, we today, we live what I call the mobile first, cloud first approach. Think about it, the mobile phone is everything today for you, is that's how you conduct your personal life, how you conduct business. But that create that, that phone generates so much data that today is being processed in these mega data centers, what we call the cloud. And the cloud data centers are already consuming almost 20% of the entire 
energy consumption around the globe, and that's not sustainable. So we as a company are thinking new radical computing architectures, where we think about data being the core of that architecture, so that instead of moving data all around, we bring that architecture where the data is and be able to do it in a much lower economical and energy sustainable way. And these are systems and designs we are implementing as we go along through our portfolio. And also we have what we call the uh, consumption model, because when you consume and pay only for that, it's actually a good thing for the planet. You don't have waste, you don't have these trillions of e-waste versus only pay for what you consume. And that's what we call the circular economy because many of the systems have a life after you're done with them. So this is why it's an entire life cycle. It's not just designing a system. It's from the time you conceive the system to the time you design it and you uh, manufacture and ship it, you run it. Most of the energy consumption today is about running, but we think about not just running, also the design and even in the manufacturing process how we consume less energy and we do it in a sustainable way. So it's an exciting time, I would say, Gene, but obviously we need to go further and faster. Antonio Neri, President and CEO of HPE, thanks so much for joining us. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. If you're just joining us, I'm Michael Duffy. Our next guest is Franz Timmermans. He's the European Commission's Executive Vice President for the Green Deal. Welcome, Mr. Timmermans. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to see you. Um, uh, some news this morning already out of Glasgow. Uh, more than 40 countries have pledged uh, to forego coal in the future. Um, uh, and I think there's a secondary agreement that's coming along, which involves a number of countries which have agreed to uh, stop financing fossil fuel projects outside their borders in, in other countries. Why are these important? Well, they're very important because we need uh, to transit out of coal and out of fossil fuels, and we need a lot of investment uh, in renewable energy uh, for that to happen. The IMF has calculated that now we spend, we invest about $11 million every minute in fossil fuel, and we need to make sure we invest uh, a part of that, at least, in uh, renewables, because that's the energy of the future. What is your assessment of how uh, the summit is going so far and the negotiations toward further steps uh, toward a renewable future? How do you assess it so far? Well, I'm, I'm, I've become more optimistic after the leaders' uh, speeches. Uh, we've seen some remarkable uh, advances. I think. Uh, India's pledge uh, to supply the country with 500 gigawatts of renewable energy before 2030 is quite something, and that really changes things. And I also believe that on finance, we're making progress, and I would like to see a bit more progress on mitigation on, on countries committing to reducing their emissions a bit faster than what they're doing now. So, well, we'll keep pushing. So I'm, I'm mildly optimistic, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, what is the reasonable expectation of the of the goals uh, this week without bolder commitments and participation uh, from China and Russia in particular? They don't seem that forthcoming this year. Well, I think I think China will start to participate in earnest. They have a very strong delegation in Glasgow led by Mr. Xi Jinping, who is a very experienced negotiator. He's been in this business for for decades. Um, so I hope we could, we'll see a more active China in the days uh, to come. 
Um, I know that we still have a tremendous amount of work to do on the financial side, but also in terms of uh, uh, creating more ambition on mitigation. And we still have a, a number of issues pertaining to the rules of the game that we need to solve. But I am I am optimistic that we can really achieve something in this period of time. You know, it is the most important COP since Paris, and we need to make sure we create enough momentum so that people leave the COP with optimism about our capability to remain well below two degrees and to still have a shot at the 1.5 degrees. Around 100 nations and parties have signed on to a global pledge to cut methane emissions uh, by 30 percent uh, by 2020, 30 percent from 2020 levels by 2030. Uh, uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, says that they will immediately, that will immediately slow down climate change. How do you make this into an economic opportunity as well as an environmental one? Well, first of all, it is a very uh, nauseous, a very uh, dangerous uh, gas to have in your atmosphere. And if you can prevent it from getting into your atmosphere uh, by, for instance, closing uh, old mines, uh, closing down wells that you don't use anymore, looking very carefully at your processes in fossil fuel industries, but also using the opportunity to create new uh, business opportunities for people in agriculture. If we do all that, we support the environmental goals we have, but we also create new economic opportunities. And I believe methane is, would be a good place uh, to start. And I really welcome the fact that the United States and the European Union have sort of found each other on this and are, uh, have been able to convince so many other countries to join our effort. So, yeah, I think this is one of the examples where the world can come together relatively quickly uh, to solve a problem that would have gotten out of hand had we not taken this initiative. Are wealthy companies, countries starting to pay their fair share on climate financing, especially for poor countries who need help? Well, I think I think we'll get we're getting there. We're now um, with the relatively conservative um, assessment by the OECD, we would reach the promised 100 billion in 2023. I hope with some additional efforts this week and next week. We can we can sort of shorten that time period to next year. It would be great if we could reach the 100 billion next year. But having said that, we also have to look at where you spend it on. You may, may have to make sure we spend more than what's been spent now on adaptation, helping developing countries to adapt to the climate crisis that's already a reality, not the crisis, crisis that's still coming, but the ones that, that's already here. So many nations need to adapt to that, and not many nations have the funds for that. So we need to make sure we use these, these funds uh, to help developing countries adapt to the realities of today. President Biden announced a framework in Glasgow of social spending uh, that he hopes will turn into law in the US, including more than $500 billion in climate funding uh, here in the US. Uh, of course, there's a great amount of division about that in our country. Are European leaders concerned about uh, the president's ability to turn that agenda into action, legislation? And well, what action? I, you know, what I really like about the way President Biden approaches this issue, he, he sees the blue collar aspect of it. Uh, because I think the biggest threat to us uh, actually achieving something in climate policy is if people can create a contradiction between climate policy and uh, uh, attending to the needs of the weaker parts of our society, of, of working class people who 
have trouble already now uh, making ends meet. So what we need to do is to create a situation where all our efforts are directed at leaving no one behind in this transition. And that's what I like about the way uh, uh, President Biden approaches the issue. Now, I hope he gets this uh, uh, across in, in uh, Congress. I think I would assume, uh, I mean, it, it's such a reasonable approach that I, I would assume that there is a majority for this. And, and this is where the European Union and the United States fully agree. This is going to be a just transition or it's just not going to happen. You were the foreign minister of the Netherlands uh, for several years, so you understand uh, the kind of negotiations that are required. But is, is climate uh, take a different set of muscles for the diplomats than, than some of the problems that, we, that uh, we faced in the Cold War? Is this a, is this a different kind of skill set? Yes, it is, because here everyone's involved. This is not just a professional negotiators looking for a uh, for an inch more here and an inch more there. This is this is about humanity's fate. You know, this is this transcends any other diplomatic issue or conflict or problem we need to solve. This is something about a collective uh, approach of humanity to a problem that we need to address collectively if we want to overcome it. You know, this is this is. It reminds me of of, of movies like Independence Day. You know, this is uh, something coming from the outside. There's not one country on earth that can avoid addressing the issue. And if we stick together as humanity, we can actually solve this. We can come out of this stronger. But this is not something you can look in. You can you can divide into camps. Those who are on the right side, those who are on the wrong side. We need everybody on board for us to be able to tackle the issue. And do you detect at, at, at this COP a different uh, mood than you recall uh, from in the past? Or, or does it feel the same to you? Well, it, it, it's reminiscent of Paris. Uh, and, and now the sense of urgency is much stronger. I think the sixth report by uh, the climate panel, the IPCC, has really uh, created a lot of uh, anxiety across the world, has really you know, um, made sure that everybody understands how serious this crisis is. And if I listen to the leaders, you know, they're saying today things that four years ago owner Greta Thunberg was saying. So um, I think there is a, a, a huge increase of understanding across the world that we're faced with a problem that's already here. The, the crisis is serious. It's affecting our harvests. It's affecting our health. It's affecting our climate. And we need to act uh, to prevent this getting out of hand. And, and I think the sense of urgency is something that I, I recognize in the conference. And that's a good thing. Yeah, Greta Thunberg has criticized uh, attendance uh, for saying that, you know, uh, something like, this isn't an exact quote, uh, change is not going to come from inside COP. Uh, how do you respond? Well, I think uh, she needs to keep pushing us. Um, you know, we have a European Green Deal without the Fridays for Future movement, without people uh, uh, like Greta, we would never have gotten there. So uh, I'm very grateful to that movement. And I hope they will stay critical. Uh, I hope they will push us even further. And together we will we will find solutions. But I can understand the frustration because from her perspective, we're not moving fast enough. But we're moving as fast as we can and we need to convince others to move uh, uh, with us. Talk to us, particularly for an American audience, what are the main goals of the European Green Deal? Well, what we've set into law is that we want to be climate neutral by 2050. To get there, we need to reduce our emissions with at least 55% by 2030. 
to make that happen, we need to change a whole host of laws uh, on sort of we need to make sure that we uh, reduce the energy consumption of our buildings. We need to transit to uh, zero emission mobility as quickly as possible. We need to uh, transit to renewable energy generation as quickly as possible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So these are we've just made everything very concrete. Uh, so people know what needs to happen to get us to the goals where we need to be. And I'm sure, but I mean, we, we lead on this because we went into this earlier than the United States. But I'm sure the United States will go through exactly the same process in the years to come. Just identify what you need to do to get where you need to be. And and is 2050 the right target, Mr. Vice President? Well, I think 2050 is the most ambitious target we could uh, come up with that can convince all member states to tag along. I think if we do this and if the world keeps moving in the same direction and, and Glasgow is giving me hope, then we can prevent uh, going beyond the 1.5 degrees. But it's going to be only just, uh, you know, so the more others can do to convince us that they're, doing, they're on the same track, the better we can uh, uh, promise uh, to achieve our goals. You know, Europe is only responsible for about 8% of global emissions. China is responsible for about 28%. So if we can succeed in convincing China to becoming more ambitious, that would have a huge positive contribution to the reduction of emissions. And that would help us actually well, stay well within the goals we set out to achieve in Paris. What do you hope to hear from China uh, uh, this week that you haven't, uh, specifically in terms of its own goals? What I would like to hear from China, if possible, when are they going to peak out? So when are they going to reach the top of their emissions? Uh, President Xi Jinping has said before 2030. Well, before 2030 can be 2029, which would mean a lot of trouble for the world to reach uh, uh, net zero by the middle of the century. But it could also be 2025. If it is 2025, which I believe and the International Energy Agency believes is better for China than, than 2029, 2030. If they set a goal like 2025, then our goals to reach um, uh, uh, neutrality by the middle of the century become far more realistic. So the choices made in China are of extreme importance uh, for our uh, collective effort. And uh, I have to remind you that China was part of the Paris Agreement. Without China, we probably wouldn't have had a Paris Agreement. So they have also a historic responsibility, I believe, to make sure that uh, the Paris Agreement is kept alive. Could you also explain, in, in slightly greater detail, why the India announcement is important this week? Well, because India you is a... Is a well, in, India is a nation that's going to continue to grow in its population, but also in its economy. Now, if they can, this growth will need more energy. Uh, and the projections were that much of that energy would come from fossil fuels. Now, if they increase their renewable energy with 500 gigawatts uh, between now and 2030, this means that they will let, need much less fossil fuels than pr projected before, which means that there will be a lot less emissions coming out of India uh, than projected before. And that's a huge contribution, positive contribution to our global efforts. Back to Europe for one second. As you stand today or sit, is, is the EU now on pace to become carbon neutral by 2050? Well, I can confidently say yes, because we've set these goals into law. 
And uh, you can see European industry, the financial world moving quickly in the same direction. You know, we, 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 um, when we came out with our green bonds, there was huge interest in the financial markets uh, to be part of that. We could have issued many, many more. Uh, so I think uh, we're all coming, we're all on the same page now. So I'm, I'm pretty confident we can reach that goal. But of course, along the way, we will be met uh, with a lot of surprises, uh, global developments, other um, uh, uh, challenges. There might be another pandemic, etc. So uh, you, you can, there, there are no guarantees in this life, but the, the way we've uh, set it up, putting our obligation into law, which is binding on every uh, member state of the European Union, does give me the confidence that we can actually get there. One of the features of the uh, Green Deal in Europe is the way it addresses um, regions of the continent that have been involved in fossil fuel production, like coal mining regions of which Europe has many. Uh, how does the deal uh, um, impact those areas and redress the challenges that are inevitable? Well, first of all, all these coal mining regions know that there's no future in coal. Uh, so the only question is, how do you exit out of coal in a way that provides new economic opportunities for these regions and you, and in these regions for the people in these regions? I mean, that's that's a challenge in Silesia just as much uh, as it's a challenge in, in West Virginia or in other places. So what we need to do is to prove to these regions that with our support, they can create new economic opportunities. And since we are in a I would say, in a demographic situation in Europe, that we need everybody on board in our industry, in our economy, that skilling and reskilling people now working in the coal mining industry is in the interest of those people, but also in the interest of our economies at large. So I believe this is an incredible opportunity if we invest in that now. Because of the pandemic, we've mobilized huge amounts of money to recover from the economic effects of the pandemic. But if we invest that in the right direction, that we can combine the Green Deal with our recovery efforts uh, uh, for, uh, out of the pandemic, and then the Green Deal becomes our growth strategy. And that will give uh, a new leases of life to all these coal, 30 coal mining regions in Europe that still need to uh, uh, exit out of coal. And the interesting thing is that especially those regions are very much interested in being part of this development because they know that with our Just Transition Fund, with the Social Climate Fund, and with other financial means we have at our disposal, we can help them create successful economic models for the future. Uh, the Green Deal also, uh, in addition to reducing emissions, will have an impact as you transition out of fossil fuels on global markets. Uh, what does that mean for the rest of the world as they face these challenges? Well, you know, we, we, we should be clear about how profound this change is. This is, this is uh, you know, this is like the first industrial revolution, but now on steroids, because it affects the whole world at the same time. And it has to happen not in 100 years, but in a generation. So uh, I, I cannot uh, 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 underestimate, we cannot underestimate the effects this will have, structural effects on the way our economy is organized on a global scale. And this will, this will lead to frictions. This will lead to the need to adapt uh, to that. And this will also lead to um, a change of mentality uh, in, in markets that are used to base everything on carbon. Um, and of course, those countries uh, where the economy depends hugely on the extraction and sale of uh, fossil fuels will have to rethink their economic model uh, uh, fundamentally. And places like Saudi Arabia are already doing that. 
uh, and doing that forcefully. So I think this is also, it's a challenge uh, for oil producing and, and gas producing countries, but it's also a huge opportunity because they have the means to uh, develop into a different direction. And for places like Saudi Arabia and, and Russia, this is a huge challenge, but I would also want to see it as an opportunity. One last question, uh, Mr. Vice President. What does the Green Deal mean for biodiversity and wildlife? Well, you know, we, we are, uh, we, we've been talking about the climate crisis now in, in our conversation, but the, the threat of ecocide is at least as threatening to the survival of humanity as is the climate crisis. And both crises are interlinked. They're interlinked. So we need to make sure that in developing the economy of the future, we make sure that we do it um, in a way that does not destroy our biodiversity. So we need to rethink the way we produce food. We need to rethink the way we organize uh, how we build uh, buildings, how we organize our transport. And we need to make sure we do this within boundaries that our planet has set. You know, destroying our biodiversity is actually destroying uh, uh, the opportunity for humanity to survive. People always talk about this is about saving the planet. No, no, the planet was there a long time before man came along and will be there a long time before man has disappeared, uh, uh, after man has disappeared. What we need to do is to make sure that humanity has an opportunity to redefine the way we live uh, 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 within planetary boundaries. And for that, we need to prevent ecocide, which is at least as important as preventing uh, the, um, uh, the climate crisis from getting out of control. Mr. Timmermans, you've been generous with your time and your insights. Really uh, a great conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.